His presence, his charisma, his debating skills, his charm and good looks, and especially his persuasiveness, brought national attention to the university and assured its continuing prestige. Like most everyone associated with the university, Alan Harris was in awe of him. Indeed, it was more emulation than awe. Harris had observed Sanborn as a role model and had assumed a guise that often imitated his idle speech patterns and movements, perhaps in a subconscious effort to enter Sanborn's skin. At times, Harris had even sensed, especially when he made a presentation to the board, that he had developed a shadow version of Sanborn's charisma. To make his present task even more daunting, Harris and Sanborn had developed a friendship beyond their business relationship. Their families exchanged visits, and Harris and Sanborn often lunched together in the faculty dining room of Canfield. Although their wives had never bonded to that extent, Mrs. Sanborn being too busy with the numerous tasks of the wife of a university president, she and Alice did enjoy an occasional game of tennis together at the country club, and were often in attendance together at various luncheons and women's group meetings. The members of the board had been stunned by the accusation against Sanborn. Actually, it was more than simply an accusation. It was a mortal stab into the heart and soul, not only to Sanborn, but also to the reputation and aura of the university. Jason Beckwith, the lawyer for the accuser, a hard-nosed, merciless legal bulldozer, had, in an act which he cannily deemed sympathetic to the reputation of the university, offered to appear before the board with his evidence, before commencing any legal proceedings through the court. The board had accepted. In deference to the broad respect in which this university is held, in this state and the country, he told them solemnly, adding his own pandering aside, and my personal regard for the convictions of the board. Harris could see the man's transparent strategy, the dagger hidden in the velvet glove. In his cups at the country club, Beckwith had often derided the rigid conservatives on the board of trustees. Many dismissed his often angry criticism, owing its origins to his having never made it to that prestigious and lofty university board. I thought it incumbent on me to bring the matter before the board with the utmost discretion and delicacy, he purred, obviously enjoying his role. In today's world, what is called sexual harassment carries criminal penalties, not to mention the publicity possibilities inherent in a salacious, frenetic media. I'm sure I don't have to apprise you of the public outcry it will create in your constituency. We are dealing here with a beloved and respected public figure. Beckwith's saccharine presentation was galling to Harris, who had locked horns with the man on many a legal occasion. The board listened to him with rapt attention and shocked horror. Beckwith laid out the evidence, sparing no details. Harris had watched the faces of the board of twelve men and four women, two blacks, one Hispanic, all true believers in their role as overseers, all proud of the university they were shepherding, all deeply respectful of their hand-picked president and his vast talents and abilities. It was Sanborn who, through his charm and inspirational salesmanship, had raised vast sums for the university and had put Canfield on the national map. Harris had found it chilling to listen to the allegations that Beckwith offered, made even more so by the man's appearance. The bald pate, the lumpy nose set in a face that looked like a jello pudding, with thick lips that opened and closed like some big squishy fish extracting oxygen from the sea. His whole aspect had always struck Harris as evolution in reverse. Such observations aside, Harris always knew that, under the absurd attempt at polite courtliness, the man was lethal. His client had made exactly the right choice. The accusing female student was a sophomore. The affair with Sanborn had lasted four months, 
and the sexual acts were carried out in numerous places in and out of town. Venues included Sanborn's office, his home, his car, wooded areas, certain hotels and other cities Sanborn had visited, and motels more than 50 miles from the university. Using clever euphemisms and slyly inserting an occasional graphic detail, Beckwith revealed the nature of the acts themselves, oral, anal, and vaginal, and made broad hints that there might have been others involved, of both sexes, suggesting orgies and twisting the knife of accusation. Preposterous! One board member cried out in the midst of Beckwith's presentation. Most of the board members were too dumbstruck to comment. The member offering the loudest dissent was Todd Farmington, a multi-millionaire stockbroker with a flamboyant bent, who mixed salesmanship with religious fervor. He was the one who invariably led the prayer at the beginning of each board meeting. Beckwith looked at the man over his half-glasses, waiting eagerly for further comment. It's obvious that the lady has another motive, Farmington said.